Rebels, it's that time. Can you feel it? Are you ready to be a great parent? Do you want to feel like you're back on your honeymoon? Well, we believe in you and God believes in you. Rebels, it's time to join the rebellion. It's time for Rebel Parenting. Hey, Rebels, this portion of the podcast is provided by MyPillow. MyPillow.com. Use the code word REBEL for a discount on a four-pack of pillows and the voice of the martyrs helping those in countries hostile to our gospel. Persecution.com for more information. Today we have Neil T. Anderson back on the broadcast. I'm telling you, this is one of my favorite all-time broadcasts on marriage. It is absolutely fire. You are going to love the wisdom of this man. I'm not going to waste any more time. Without any further ado, here is Neil T. Anderson on today's edition of Rebel Parenting. Awesome. We are Live here with Neil T. Anderson of Bondage Breakers. Oh my goodness, I have thought about that broadcast so many times. It is one of our number one most listened to broadcasts, most downloaded broadcasts. And I have had so many comments from people that have read Bondage Breakers, that listen to the podcast, that were given so much help. I just can't thank you enough for coming back on Rebel Parenting. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you for asking me. Neil, last time we were on, your wife was in late stages of of life, and I was so touched that, you know, you were going over there every day, and just your compassion and your grace, and talking about somebody living in a home, and the natural fears they have, and the prayers that you were praying, uh, how are you doing now? Well, frankly, I'm doing great. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting, when you take care of your wife for seven years, and at the last four, it's almost, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week kind of a thing. You have a lot of time to process it. I, you know, being a pastor for a number of years, I said the one I, my heart really goes out to those who have a great relationship or a great child, and then suddenly you lose them. Well, mm. that is just a, you know, just a trauma shock kind of a thing. So my really defining moment was actually about four or five years ago when I just sat in front of my computer and I kind of heard from God saying she's not going to make it. And so everything turned from that time on in the sense of taking care of her. It was not try to make her well, but to try to make her comfortable. So, you know, I had a long time to process it. And, you know, during the end, people didn't know how to talk to me, and I didn't know how to talk back to them because half of them said, yeah. It's going to be a great relief when she goes home and bees with the Lord, and the other hand, you're going to lose it. And, and, and I was feeling the same way. I mean, you know, I just sure. hated to see my wife suffer any longer than she had to. And yet, to be honest with you, I said the very day she passed, October 2nd, it was actually a little more impacting than I thought it would be. But I said, you know, I guess it's a suddenness. All of a sudden, boom, there's an end. And life will never yeah. be the same afterwards. And I remember sitting at my table that night, and and eating there by myself, and I realized that's the first meal I've missed with her in, in four years. And you kind of go, well, <laughs> and then you get up the next day and walk around because everything was so defined. You know, get her up at at 7.30, get her up at, have pills at 10, and, and get her up at 11.30 and 2 in the afternoon and 4.30, you know, et cetera. And all of a sudden, the next day, you're kind of looking around, now what do I do? <laughs> but um, life has gotten back to normal. It's a new normal, and... Um, Ministry opportunities have opened up, and so I'm excited to get on with this, this next phase of my life. 
Sure. Actually, that was my next question. You know, you were spending so much time over there, you know, going over three times a, a day, going over every day during the week, you know, all the praying. You know, that was a, a large hole to fill, and it suddenly it just goes away. You know, you say October 2nd, that's barely, not even four months ago. You know, all of a sudden there's all this time that you had regulated, that you knew exactly where you were going to go, where you're going to be, what you're going to be doing. What was that void like right afterwards? Void. <laughs> I mean, you know, because your life was so regulated and suddenly, you know, I found myself looking at my watch, you know, three, four times a day. Just, well, I don't have to do that anymore. And so, you know, life is, is it, you can't make immediate adjustments, but it, it has really been a good thing. I've been, you know, I got down to the parks and recreation and joined an enrichment center and, you know, meet with some old folks and ministry opportunities have come up. I mean, the Monday after the funeral, I got a call from Spanish House asking if I could come down to the Spanish Book Cutters Commission next summer. And that was almost like a sign from God saying, all right, you know, you've been uh, yeah. confined to home for a while, but now I'm going to move you on. So it's, mm-hmm. it's the next phase of my life. And and I'm kind of excited about it, to be honest with you, because it, like an adventure again. And I'm able to look back, no regrets, no regrets. You know, 52 good years, thank you, God. I'll see my wife again someday. So, That's right. That's right. You know, I, I really think that no regrets thing is so important. I think uh, you went out well. You did it right throughout the end. You stuck with it, and you don't have any regrets. You're not looking back saying, oh, my goodness, I really feel guilty about this. Or I feel a lot of shame about this. You look back and say, I did what I was supposed to do. I did what God called me to do, and now he's released me on to the next phase in my life. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was a, a gal I met at the Y that her husband well, stayed in the same place Joanne did for a while. And um, we got to talking about it a little bit. She said, you know, I've got this friend who pops in about every other day to see her husband and kind of questioned her about it. He said, well, we're not joined at the hips or anything. And I said, we look at each other. I am. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I can't imagine to end life after 52 years and, and have that kind of disconnect with your spouse. I said, that is not good growth. That is not good maturity. I said, we really were one in Christ. And so mm-hmm. now I'm trying to find my oneness only in God, but it's a good journey and I'm thankful for it. And so life gets on. What's really interesting is I had put off some carpal tunnel surgery and a shoulder surgery and until Joanne, you know, passed. And so I've been doing a lot of body repair. In the last... <laughs> I, got, I got, you're taking care of you now. I'm taking care of me right now. So, but I'm yeah. getting over it. I actually had a shoulder replacement. I, I thought I rinsed my shoulder and I thought I had rotator cuffs. And so he went and took an x-ray. He said, no, nah, you got arthritis. And I said, what do I do about that? He said, well, I'll give you a cortisone shot or, you know, you can live with it or you can have your shoulder replaced. And I thought, shoulder replaced? I mean, that was off my grid. I said, who has that done? He said, I do several surgeries a week. Really? And so anyway, long story short, I waited for that. And four weeks ago, I had my shoulder replaced. I tell people, I said, God finally found a replacement too. It was a chimpanzee in Zimbabwe. (laughs) So someday I will be able to go from tree to tree in Amazon. (laughs) That's right. 
You know, I was thinking about you. We were on vacation over Christmas, and we were getting ready to fly home, and Laura had a pain in her stomach. Uh, and long story short, it was appendicitis, acute appendicitis. We went straight to the hospital, and she had surgery that very day. We didn't fly home. We stayed for an extra week. And the doctor told me, had you tried to fly home, she probably wouldn't have made it. And I just thought, I don't know what I would do. I don't want anyone else. I don't want another person in my life. I don't want to go through all that again. I want the one I've got. And it did make me think of this broadcast coming up with you. And I'm just so thankful that you came back on and just your openness and willingness to talk about subjects that really are, frankly, difficult to talk about. You know, you talk about people didn't know how to talk to you. You didn't know how to talk to them. That's so normal. Like, how do you, you know, I would go back to our friend's house and they'd say, how are you feeling? And I'd be like, I don't know. I almost lost my wife again. I don't know how I'm, I'm feeling terrible and terrified and scared and relieved. And, you know, I don't, I don't have any idea what to say to those questions. <laughs> I know. I know. And, and people don't know how to respond. I said, I've often shared with folks in ministry, I I said, if you break your leg or have some physical problem, we know exactly how to deal with that. We'll sign your cast. We'll bring meals over to you. But if somebody is depressed or, you know, has an anxiety disorder or something like that, we just mm. almost back off. We don't know what to say. How's your head? You know, well, that doesn't work. You know, kind of a situation. So we kind of, nobody wants to report it then. I mean, people stand up in a prayer meeting and say, you know, I'm this or that. But almost nobody stands up and say, you know, I'm having, you know, panic attacks or anxiety disorders or I'm depressed or anxious because we don't know how to respond to people like that. That is right. So we just kind of suffer in silence in a way. But, you know, on the other hand, I'm thankful for the people who showed care and concern and, you know, that remembered Joanne and, you know, thought of me. And so that's the Christian community working, and I appreciate it, even though they don't know what to say sometimes. (laughs) I don't know how to respond to them. But anyway... That's behind me. I'm on to my next chapter in life. By the way, the Bondage Breaker is going to come out in March with a brand new edition. People say, what would you do taking care of your wife all the time? I wrote seven books. <laughs> wow. Wow-wee. That's amazing. I can't wait for that to come out. I know a lot of people are going to be excited about that. You know, Neil, you really did lead me exactly into what I wanted to talk about today. Speaking of depression, I was telling our producer before this program, when I went through my divorce, I went through a deep, deep clinical depression. I was sleeping 16, 18 hours a day. I lost my job. I didn't get a new one. Every bill I had had a red label on it. Uh, My house was going to go into foreclosure, and I just didn't care. I could not bring myself to get up. And people say, you know, exercise is is better than antidepressants and all those things. I was listening to someone in an interview who was clinically depressed and he said, you know, someone kept telling him to exercise. And he goes, when I wake up in the morning, I have a long debate whether or not I should get up and go to the bathroom or just use the bathroom in my bed. And you're telling me to exercise. (laughs) And I went through that. It took a big intervention of people coming physically to get me up out of bed and get me outside and working back in my life. But I've been doing a lot of speaking lately, and the question that keeps coming up over and over and over again is what does one spouse do when the other one is struggling? You know, we've got recently I have some a spouse, her spouse is um, looking at pornography, and I've got a spouse who is depressed and I have a spouse that deals with substance abuse and I have a spouse feels the other one is lazy and not really helping out around the house. And our, our natural human tendency is just to point the flaw out over and over. Like this bothers me, this bugs me, you do this and, and it hurts me. And 
they feel so stuck. I had a spouse come to me and say, you know, when we got married, uh, my wife uh, was a Christian, raised in a Christian family, and now doesn't know if they believe anything anymore and doesn't want to go to church and I'm taking the kids alone. What advice do you have for a spouse that feels like they're heading in self-improvement? They're getting a deeper relationship with the Lord. They're, they're heading in a positive direction, and the other spouse is stuck. Whether it's substance abuse or pornography or laziness or depression, are there things that one spouse can do tangibly to help the other one, to encourage the other one, to, to, to get off the negative train and, and into something more positive? Well, that's a great question. Neil, I'm so sorry. We literally just had somebody that's watching us right now that's asking a very similar question. What do you do when there's a spouse that's emotionally unavailable and recognizes it and doesn't know what to do? You know, what, how do we help the spouse that really is struggling? Yeah. Going through this about four years ago, I personally experienced the presence of God in a way I never really had before. And I started to write, and I wrote this little book, The Power of Presence. It's about experiencing God during that time, because I was in a situation where it's like taking care of a little child. You don't get any feedback from it. I mean, people with dementia, they don't consider the other person more important than themselves like we're supposed to. In fact, they don't consider the other person at all. They're so overwhelmed with their own inadequacies and needs that, that there's no feedback to it. In the book, I said, I love God. I love my wife more now than I've ever loved her in my life but not in the same way I first loved her. When I first met Joanne, she was a classy lady. I was attracted to her. It's what she did for me. Now, she can't do anything for me. Nothing. Now, however, I love her not because of who she is, but because of who I am. That is a a growth process that I think God has in mind for all of us. The love of God is not dependent upon the object. God loves us because God is love. Even Jesus said, what credit is you to you if you love those who love you? Even the heathen do that. And so it's a real test of our own personal growth and maturity to love the unlovely, to love them when there's no feedback kind of a situation. But the other issue was not only experiencing God's presence in my own life of just doing my duty, essentially, but also what my presence means to Joanne. And sometimes we just overlook the value of just being there. And when somebody is in despair, why are you in despair, O oh my soul? Hoping God for I shall again praise him, the psalmist says three times. It's, um, I think in looking back over my own personal life, you see where the world is at out there, and there can't be anything more overrated than sex, and unfortunately more undervalued than companionship, of what it means to be two together in one. I've gone through this three times with my wife, three times when she couldn't really function. And um, they were dramatic turning points in my life. The first one, uh, it really honestly uh, led to my appointment at Talbot. You know, Joanne, I was a pastor at the time. She got depressed and sick. And I mean, it was just like, what in the world is going wrong here? And it really started with cataract surgery and they came out of it. And, uh, and all of that just changed overnight. And out of the blue, I got called to teach at Telford School of Theology. The second time, I, I didn't know whether Joanne was going to live or die. And we just lost everything we had. And out of that was the birth of Freedom in Christ Ministries. God brought Neil Anderson to the end of his resources so I could discover his. Mm. 
That was one of the, the biggest points in my personal life. It's a ministry born out of brokenness. And uh, in that little book, Power of Presence, I talk about, you know, what's going to happen after this one? You know, is this the third time in my life? And, you know, I've already got signs right now, even though I'm getting older and older. <laughs> but this may be one of the greater periods of my life and uh, in terms of ministry and production and whatever. And so uh, you, you always got to have that. Without vision, people perish. There's, there's, this too will pass. And then you look beyond this difficult time and say, there's something out there for me. I think it is a major test in our own personal life, a test of our faith, test of our endurance and courage. Uh, to do our duty no matter what, to do the, what's responsible. I've always taught it's God first, then my family, then ministry. i got to live that. I, I can't just say, okay, so when I promised Joanne I'd get off the road to, you know, so we'd have our time, you know, I think God just honored that. And um, and so, you know, it, it's not always easy. Sometimes, you know, our spouses go through tough times, and it takes the grace of God to just love them. But I can't overstate how important it is to say, I'm going to stay faithful. I'm going to be here for you. I'm here just to be here. Yeah. And, uh, and so talk to the spouse that's struggling with the frustration or the anger. They've, they've been wounded. They've been hurt. And this is, a, you know, I love this. It's so hard, you know, and especially, I got to be honest, especially in this era, in this 2019 era, the hard work responsibility isn't really being focused on very much. You know, there is, and I don't want to say that my audience is entitled. I really don't. And yet there is this overarching entitlement in culture today that, well, that's not fair. And if it's not fair, it's not right. And if it's not right, I don't have to work on it. And we're not promised fair. And so this is a testing of our faith. It's a deepening of our faith. You know, when you talked about that, it worries me that so many of our listeners weren't raised in a house that focused on deepening of the faith, of the foundations of Scripture and daily Bible study and being in the Word and being in prayer. And so they think, well, my faith is being tested, but what do I do to strengthen my faith during this time so I get out of anger? You know, so many people that get overwhelmed get angry, and they're just yeah. angry at their spouse. And so they're, they want to be present. They want to show love. They're just frustrated. They're angry. What can we all do to focus on the Lord and focus on this testing period so that we can be loving, kind, gentle, have patience with our spouses instead of just being like, it's not fair, I'm working so hard, and you're not working, and you're not doing these things, and I'm just frustrated with you. How do we focus back on ourselves so that we're not focusing on their shortcomings, which isn't, this focusing on your spouse's shortcomings isn't helping. It really isn't. Nope. <laughs> you hit another one of my hot buttons. I just released a book this year called Managing Your Anger. Uh, anger is about control <clears throat> or the lack thereof. You know, you got something like road rage. And I said, why do people all of a sudden uh, leave their house where they basically have everything kind of under control somewhat, anyhow, unless you've got teenage kids, of course. But, but you, you leave that controlled environment and you get out in public and all of a sudden people don't take off as fast as they should or they cut in front of you. And you listen to the self-talk. Now, hurry up, stupid. Come on, the light changed. Get off your cell phone, you nut. You know, and all of a sudden you realize, what's going on here? <laughs> this is a little battle for my mind, and somehow I want to try to control that traffic out there and can't do it. And it isn't just traffic. It's your spouse. It's your kids sometimes as well. I said, here, here's one of the baseline bottom problems that we have in our culture right now. 
is that any time a culture, a people, or a person emphasizes their rights over their responsibilities, I promise you, you're going down. And everybody talks about my rights. I got my rights. You know, a gal has a, baby, I have my right. I said, you have a responsibility over your own body, and we just have just blown this thing off. I said, I grew up in a different area. I mean, I honestly did. I was raised on a farm, and if I didn't feed the sheep, they died, and if, if we didn't plant crops in the springs, we didn't harvest in the fall. There was cause and effect built into it. But I don't yep. ever remember in those days people saying, I got my rights, kind of a thing. And I thought, yep. all I was taught was responsibility. You know, I'm so thankful for that. But today, you know, you know, I'm a right over my own body, a woman says, when she's facing abortion. I said, well, you're demonstrating your irresponsible use of it. I mean, we don't have an abortion problem. We have an irresponsible sex problem. And nobody wants to suffer the consequences of that. And, and that's another turn in our whole culture. I mean, all the problems you have out there, you know, the more liberal that you get, the more you say, well, you don't have to suffer the consequences of that poor choice. We'll bail you out of your home loan or whatever else. I said, oh, come on, folks. You can't live that way. As though somehow there's no consequences for the choices that I make. Neil, I agree with you 100%. I, I think about my grandpa. My mom's dad uh, dropped out of school in the seventh grade because his mom died giving birth to the 13th sibling. His dad was an alcoholic and wasn't taking care of the family, and either he went to work as the oldest child or his siblings died. It was literally survival. It was go to work in the coal mines in North Dakota or your siblings will die. And he chose go to work in the coal mines in South Dakota. And then he went from there to the CCCs during the Depression. And then he went from there to the Navy in World War II. And he fought on a battleship. And he never talked about how his dad didn't love him. His dad didn't hug him. Uh, he didn't talk about being sad that his mom passed away. He talked about being grateful for his job. He talked about being grateful for the CCCs. He was grateful to the Navy. He was grateful to the Union Tile Layers Association. He had his 50-year Union Tile pin for being on his knees for 50 years laying tile. I totally get that. And... I wasn't raised that way. My kids aren't raised that way. They're never going to experience that unless we get into another world war, which I'm afraid may happen. But we have a generation, we've got a lot of people where we live a very easy life. And an easy life makes us turn inward and get selfish, where we do start putting our rights over our responsibilities. And so are there tangible things we can do as people of faith you know, where in the scriptures can we point ourselves to say, listen, I've got to start getting my responsibility above my rights. I've got to start getting, you know, when it said till death do us part in sickness and in health and richer and poor for better or for worse, till death do us part, I've got to get into the, I said I'd be there when it's worse and sick and poor. And I'm speaking to myself in this. I get frustrated and I start thinking, well, I'm doing all these things and you're not doing those things and I've got these rights and it's ridiculous, but I find myself falling into those traps. Well, that's what society is peddling to us this day. I, yep. I mean, you know, it's just, you just watch what's going on even in Washington. You hear all of these goose and things that people make and nobody has to pay any consequences for that. Mm. You know, and somewhere along the line... If our country doesn't wise up and realize that if you don't hold people responsible for their own attitudes and actions, I said, what kind of a culture are you going to have? It's just going to be chaos. 
Paul says it so beautifully. We exalt in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings perseverance. Perseverance, proven character. Proven character and hope. And hope that doesn't disappoint because of the God has been poured forth out into our hearts. And so if people say, come in and say, I want this fixed. I can't promise you that. What I can promise you is if you stay faithful during these times of tribulation, what's going to result is proven. Proven character. Not lip service. Proven character. Quality of life. I said, and that is God's will for my life. My sanctification. That I become more and more like Jesus. And to get there, you've got to consider the other person more important than yourself. But if you're just looking out for your own selfish needs all the time, that kind of self-centeredness is just going to just be nothing but a self-fulfilling prophecy in your life. The very thing that you want, you will not be able to get. Because you essentially, you have centered your life on self instead of on God. And it's just tragic to watch this happen in our culture today. I mean, it's changed so dramatically in my own personal lifetime, and yet it's just perpetuated. I said, yep. there are consequences to choices that we make, and you've got to assume responsibility for those choices. And if, if you continue to do that all your life and say, nobody out there is keeping you from being the person God created you to be. Nobody. The only one who can stop that process is ourselves. You know, that could either be a curse how you look at it, or a blessing. And I always look at that as a blessing. I get up this morning, nobody out there can keep me from being the person God created me to be, and that's my goal, and I'm going to continue to focus on that for the rest of my life. And uh, it's amazing when uh, you live your life that way, how other things begin to fall into place for you. But a self-centered life, selfish life. Never, nobody's needs gets met. What, what would happen if everybody in this world committed themselves to become the person God created me to be and looked out to the other person and made a commitment to meet their needs above their own? And everybody did that. What would life be like? Well, It'd look forward to it, folks. That will be heaven. <laughs> yep, it's true. You know, I was listening to someone recently. You know, I do a Rebel Dads podcast, and I preach faith, hard work, and responsibility. And I was listening to an interview. I, I wish I could remember who it was right now because this is not unique to me by any means. But they were saying, the harder you work and the more responsibility you take on, not only will your life get better, everyone around you, their life will get better too. All your kids will get better the more hard work you do and the more responsibility you take on. Your wife will get better. Your husband will get better. Your church will get better. Your neighbors will get better. Your community is going to get better. Your country will get better. The more we can focus on hard work and taking on more responsibility. I love that you said, no one can keep me from being the person God created me to be except me. I'm the only one that can stop me from that. Not another person can. Ooh, that's so deep. I got to say, it's so hard to hear and it's comforting to hear. You know, God didn't say it would be easy. He just said, follow me. And I think we've just gotten off that path of, well, but I, I am following you. Isn't it supposed to be easy? And he said, no, just follow me. I said, if you think living a righteous life is hard, try living a sinful one. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, after a while, the deaths pile up, you get fired, you, you know, you get drunk on the job, you, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, um, <laughs> I, I really kind of disagree with the concept of, you know, it's too hard. I said, I think it's harder when you fail. I think it's harder when you aren't responsible. I think that the deaths just accumulate. And life goes on, you, you, and it's terrible. I'd like to get back to what you talked about earlier because you said you were so depressed. Let me share a little bit. Can I on depression for a moment? Please. Depression, and, and this is not just Neil speaking. I mean, there's enough evidence out there. The primary cause yeah. 
for depression in most people's lives is a reaction to losses in their life. And the big one you mentioned, the loss of a spouse, of a divorce or a job or health or, or whatever else. And uh, I said, I remember speaking at, at uh, Kennedy's Christian Conference Center. I was supposed to do a weekend thing, and I had kind of advertised to Biden and Christ. And my book came out on depression or was coming out at that time, and I wanted to get a little public feedback on it. I said, can I talk about depression? And they said, oh, man, this is Liberty weekend. People are coming up here. I want to get blessed. I'll tell you what. I talk about depression. People came out of the woodwork. Yes, sir. <laughs> I, I yes, said, sir. I said, let me tell you why this is important. I said, because everything you have right now, someday you shall lose. And so if you haven't learned how to deal with losses and overcome those, you're going to have a lot of misery in your days ahead. You can't help but. There is no permanence on this earth, and, and people are terrorized by the idea of impermanence. And people, you know, the tragedy that we're having today, you go in to see your doctor, and he correctly diagnoses depression. He's got 10 minutes to talk to you. What's he going to do? He's going to write out a prescription. And every psychiatrist in the country will. And um, say it's a one-dimensional approach to that concept. I said, that will not help you get over the loss. It may relieve the symptoms for a little while, but you haven't dealt with the core issue. And somehow or another, people who are in that depressive triad, you know, poor view of themselves, poor view of their circumstances, poor view of the future, I said, here's where the Christian ought to just shine. I'm a child of God. How can you have a poor view of, of being privileged enough to be called yourself a child of God? My future, I always live with hope. I got a God of all hope. My circumstances around me, it's not determining who I am. That's not determining who I am, nor my course of action. That's between me and God, and we got to help people get into that. We've, I've got a video series that we've done, and that and I hope churches will use as well, because people are depressed. I mean, we're living in a, in a world of anxiety, you know, experiencing a blues oh, epidemic, yeah. and it's getting worse and worse. And it frustrates me, because you're talking right now to the only, what Paul would call a pastor teacher who's written books on anger, anxiety disorders, depression, chemical addiction, sexual addiction, because I deeply believe that we have an answer in Christ, the eternal presence of God in our life, and knowing who we are as children of God. I'm not an addict. I'm not a codependent. Uh, that is not who I am. Who I am determines what I do. Not what I do doesn't determine who I am. And, um, beloved, now you are a child of God. When you start living that way, uh, you get up every morning and say, man, I may feel a you know, alive to this world and dead to Christ, but that's not true. What I, what's true is I'm a child of God. I'm going to live by faith today according to what God said is true, and then it works out in my experience. My experience doesn't make it right. It just works out because of what I chose to believe. And so we got to win that little old battle for our mind and, and get on the right kind of a track and continue to walk by faith according to what God said is true. Then it begins to work out in your experience, but you start doubting. You're going to be like Peter and after about three steps out of the boat, you start thinking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's one thing that happens. I think, I think we there's this try, and then you know we want you know we have such this instant gratification. We've got Amazon Prime, we've got you know movies on demand, you know all these different things. You got you know Grubhub that'll you know bring food to you right now. You know uh, Uber Eats. 
you know, all these different things. And so we try for a little while. We get, you know, as you say, three steps in and we're not seeing a response. And so then we start that doubt process. What are some of the tangible things we can do when we start to doubt? Because all of us experience it. You know, you, you start and you try and you see a little bit of help and a little things are happening and then it just kind of plateaus out and that doubt creeps in. And then we start doubting ourselves. You know, man, what you said, a poor view of self, circumstances in the future. I hear that all the time, all the time. What are some of those things we can do when doubt starts to creep in? Well, Lamentations has a good uh, passage on that. You know, he talks about chapter 3 where God has called a man and circumstances are horrible. Therefore, I've lost hope. He said, but this I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. His mercies are renewed every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Psalm 13, David talks about, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? How long will I take counsel in my soul? Poor guy's talking to himself. And, um, I mean, David at that point is depressed. And then he says, But this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. He said, Wait a minute, I'm a child of God, I know who I am. And, And it really begins in your mind. It really begins what it is that I really truly believe. You don't do anything without first thinking it. And so the key is to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is where the devil is having a field day in our churches and our people's lives today because they start believing the lies and and they start going down. And somehow or another, you know, that's what I really try to bring out in in the bondage breaker and and helping people to realize this spiritual battle for a mind because it isn't just some people. It's all of us. When Paul says we wrestle not with flesh and blood, we is, is inclusive. It's all of us. Everybody is in a spiritual battle, whether they like it or not. The real question is, is that if you put on the armor of God, it's like putting up the shield of faith against those fiery darts. Is uh, When i bombarded by all these stupid thoughts that you know come in, and you're no good, and God doesn't love you, and this isn't going to work, and why don't you just give up and get a divorce and move out and whatever else, I said, Take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ. What's true? Think upon that. Paul says in Philippians 4, whatever's true, whatever's right, whatever's honorable, think on that. But don't stop there. The next verse says, put that into practice. Do the right thing. Do the truthful thing. Do the loving thing. Do the pure thing. Then, he said, the grace of God will be with you. Oh, I'm taking notes as fast as I can. Neil, I think you have hit upon the exact malady that is facing our culture today. It really is that, you know, we have got this quick fix culture. You know, you talk about putting on the armor of God. I think we've forgotten that. I think we've forgotten to put on the armor of God, that we get up in the morning and we're so rushed and we're so busy that we're not taking the time to do the right things, you know, that will pay off in the end. You know, I was, I was talking about on church last Sunday, I was preaching and I said, you know, when I got married to Laura, I never dreamed someday that she would have cancer. I just never, never dreamed that that would take place. I didn't prepare for it. I didn't think about it. I didn't think, what would I do if something terrible happened to my wife? Well, it's happened a bunch of times so far. And I think we forget to prepare ahead of time that we need almost like this toolbox to say, every day when I get up, I'm going to 
remind myself of these things. What is true? What do I know to be true? That God loves me. There's nothing I can do that's going to make him love me more or less. That if I do the right thing, he will reward me in the end. That I am a child of God. That I am blessed to be a child of God. We've forgotten these basic principles of Christianity and we're in this quick fix society. And when it doesn't happen quickly, the doubt creeps in. I think you have hit right the nail on the head. You know, anxiety, depression, sadness, all these things are a symptom of not having that foundation laid. You know, my grandpa was such a man of prayer and such a man of scripture, and I think we've just lost that in our personal lives. Yes, it seems like it's kind of slipping away here in America, and unfortunately, right now, in to the general public, the gay community has more political clout than the church does. I mean, we have, in a lot of sense, in the last few years, almost been marginalized in terms of public view. In fact, they almost, some of them just really almost hate us that we hold a line on uh, a marriage, on sex, and that kind of thing, as though somehow or another, you know, that we're the vindictive ones. And I said, you know, the real tragedy here is it isn't that God doesn't love us, that he doesn't want to permit those kind of things. It's because he does love us, and he wants to give us a life and meaningful relationships. He's not taking anything away from you. He wants to add life to your life. I came that you would have life. That life means your soul is in union with God, and you can face every day. To a lot of people, I said, you have to realize, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. Jesus said that. Be of good cheer. I've overcome that, he said. But uh, you kind of nailed something a little earlier. I said, to prepare people for impermanence. Three times in the Gospels, Jesus said he's going to go to Jerusalem, be crucified, dead, buried, raised on the third day. Three times he told the disciples that. First time I was met with Peter's great denial. Oh, Lord, may it never happen to you. Get behind me, Satan. And uh, right. the next time, uh, you know, they um, basically were in denial about the whole issue. And then the third time, they were approaching Jerusalem, and it was impending, and suddenly they were afraid to ask. And uh, I said, so I think there's wisdom in what Jesus did in preparing the disciples so he didn't all of a sudden drop you know, Good Friday on him like that. But he said, I'm going, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And I said, in my own personal life, I said, I look ahead and I said, what if this happened? What if this happened? Could I live with it? What if I got cancer? Could I live with that? What if I lost my job? Could I live with that? Well, people do all the time. And if your answer to that is yes, you have taken the power of that loss away from them. I said, whatever you lose. Paul says, I count everything but rubbish apart from the past and value of Christ Jesus my Lord. And he suffered the loss of all things. And yet out of that rubble came the Apostle Paul. Was it Eliot that said, he is no fool to give up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And so if you can say that, if you can get up this morning and say, I don't care what happens to me today, I know that my God will always be there and I can overcome whatever happens today. It is not the end of the world. And I may lose my job, I may lose this, I may lose whatever else. However, it's not determining who I am, and I know I can live with that. And if you say, I know I can live with that, then the power of that loss has been taken away from you. And said, I'm still who I am. Heaven is still a prepared place. I'm still a child of God. God still loves me. I know who I am. And knowing who I am is really the ticket to get through that. Mm. My goodness, Neil, this is just unbelievable. It really is. You know, I look back over the 13 years I've been with my wife. Uh, Our first year, her mom died of a sudden heart attack, and Laura found her. And we went through uh, four miscarriages. 
and we went through three adoption attempts that went through and failed. She had an ovarian uh, blood clot that almost caused death. Uh, she's been through cancer and the latest one, emergency surgery. And had you asked me before, could I have gone through those things? I would have said, oh, no, I couldn't do all that. I mean, not in, not in 13 years. That'd be too much. It'd be too overwhelming. I would just collapse. I couldn't take it. And yet here I am. I'm still here, battered, bruised, broken a bunch of times and still fighting. And the truth is I would have gone through all of it better if I was better prepared. I would have, had I, had I kept up the armor of God, had I kept in the daily walk, had I kept in the scripture, had I kept in the prayer, I would have handled it better. I just wasn't expecting it, and it's foolish. I'm throwing myself under the bus. It was foolish. I just think we have this naivety. I don't even know. I just didn't expect those things to happen, and I think I now need more preparation. I need that daily preparation, that daily armor of God so that when, not if, when something happens with one of my kids, when something happens to me, health, I mean, I didn't talk about things that happened to me. I've almost died a bunch of times since I got married. When those things happen, that we are prepared as a family, not just me personally, but excuse me, now as a husband, I've got to teach my kids Bad things will happen to us. Bad things will come our way. The rain falls on the, on the good and the bad. And when it does, this is who we already are. And then we forget that in those moments of weakness. We forget who we are. We forget who died for us. I know I have for sure. And it's just such a powerful reminder to have daily preparations for when hard times come. Then we can be a beacon of light to those around us. When we go through hard times and when someone else does, they can come to us and go, how did you go through that? And we don't have to say, I don't have any idea how I made it through that. I can say, well, I made it through it with the power of Christ, and here's what I did. Good for you. Keep doing it. (laughs) I think you're dead right. I think we we have done kind of an inadequate job, generally speaking, as a church, of preparing people for the future. I remember I, years ago, I was teaching at the seminary at the time, and, uh, you know, I was probably middle-aged, and uh, the older class in our church asked if I would speak at a retreat for them. So I talked about the preparing for impermanence and, you know, taking care of, you know, wills and other things like that, assuming that all these, and they were in probably mostly in the 60s and 70s, and uh, most of them were still married, still had a spouse. Mm. I thought, well, for sure, you guys have all talked about this, right? Was I shocked? They had not. And they'd yeah. done a few basic things like, you know, mm. talk about my will. But I said, you really ought to talk about it now. I said, because when the loss hits you and suddenly your wife has a heart attack or something like that, you are not at that moment really prepared to deal with that loss. And that's not a time to teach great theology. I always taught pastors at the seminary. I said, during a moment of crisis, is, is you don't have to answer all the questions. In fact, don't even try. Just hug them and hold them. Weep with those who weep. That's what you should do right then. But the tragedy of it is, is that you haven't prepared for that. I said, talk about those kind of things. This physical life that we have on this earth is not permanent. And the more you are able to accept and understand and prepare for that, more you take away the fear of death, to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. For me to live is Christ. To die is actually gain. And if you got that in your thinking, then truth of the matter is when those tragedies come, you're already prepared for it. But if all of a sudden, you know, your faith isn't there, you haven't built that foundation, and that crisis hits, you know, 
it doesn't ever, and no crisis will ever come upon us that God intended and are allowed to ruin us, but it does reveal who we are. Amen. It and, certainly does. And so, you know, the more that you can prepare yourself for the fact that I'm going to have tragedy, everything I have right now, someday I'm going to lose. And I can live with that. I can learn to live with that. And part of that is, is to say, in the, the one constant in life for the believer is that my God will never leave me nor forsake me. And the more we experience the presence of God in our life, the more you know, confidence and assurance that we're going to have on a daily basis. And it's, it's just kind of sad in a way that we kind of live from moment to moment and weekend to weekend instead of living with eternity in view. Precious in the sight of God is the death of one of his godliness. From a time perspective, that makes no sense at all. From an eternal one, it makes all the sense in the world. And so we got to get out of that time orientation. The principal life that you have is not this physical one. You're going to lose that someday. It's the eternal life that you have, that your soul is in union with God, that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. And the more you ascertain that and know who you are as a child of God, the truth of the matter is, the shifting sands of this world and the various philosophies, you know, are not going to have that kind of an effect on you. Oh, amen. Neil, we are out of time, but I can't tell you this has just been, it's been one of my favorite broadcasts. I think this will have a longer lasting impact on me than maybe any other broadcast we've done. I cannot thank you enough. I can't wait to have you back on. I'm ordering uh, your book on anger. Uh, I've got like four books I wrote down that you mentioned that we're going to order here, and I just can't wait to talk to you again. It is such a pleasure. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, thank you, brother. Appreciate it. God bless you. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, Rebels. Thanks to Neil T. Anderson for providing so much wisdom to our listeners. Thanks again to The Voice of the Martyrs, persecution.com, and MyPillow, mypillow.com, code word rebel. Thanks a lot, Rebels. We will see you soon. Rebel Parenting is produced by Rebel Media House. And when you need a little help with your marriage or parenting, and everyone does, you can find it at rebelparenting.org. Sign up for the Rebel Update by texting the word REBEL to 444-999. That's R-E-B-E-L, and the number is 444-999. We love it when you share Rebel Parenting with your friends and family, so thank you. God bless. Thanks for spending your time with us, and we'll see you next time for another episode of Rebel Parenting. Rebel Parenting.